At around midday on October the 31st, 1946, 37-year-old Joe Hammond is driving his lorry along the A20 London Road in Kent. The tree-clad mound of Rootham Hill rises up steeply on his right. In the summer, the hill is a popular destination for walkers. The twisting path runs up the side to the summit. Alongside the path lies a steep gully, which the locals call Devil's Kitchen. On a clear day, there's a stunning view of the Kent Weald and Downs from the top of the hill. But today, the air is murky with a fine autumn drizzle, the sky grey and overcast. There's a definite chill in the air, and the place seems gloomy and abandoned. Perfect conditions for Halloween. The engine strains as the lorry takes the hill. Hammond is delivering six tons of paper bales to a mill in Dartford, about 13 miles north of here. He's looking forward to a cup of tea and a chat when he gets there. Suddenly, Hammond spots something out of place on the verge beside the road. He's always been sharp-eyed and quick to react, so he takes it in immediately. It's a shoe. A woman's, he's sure of it. He pulls over and gets out of the cab to investigate. Part of him is thinking, this isn't right. Something bad must have happened. Another part thinks, maybe somebody just threw the shoe away. But why would they do that? He picks it up. As he thought, a woman's shoe. The right one, blue, flat-heeled. Good quality, almost brand new. Hammond scans the ground nearby. He spots an area of flattened grass, a trail leading to the hedgerow. He parts the branches and sees her. She's lying on the ground on the other side of the hedge, her legs pointing towards him. The right foot is without its shoe, the toes sticking out through a hole in her stocking. The left leg is bent and still has its shoe in place. The woman's dress is bunched up. Her face is partially covered by a coat. The leaves have started to fall on top of her body. If he'd not stopped to investigate the shoe when he did, who knows if she would ever have been found. Hammond notices that her right hand is clenched into a fist. At that moment, he knows that she has been murdered. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Later that day, the ground is being combed for clues by officers from the Kent Constabulary. They find a number of items of interest. A hairnet, a loose ball of blue wool with hair and hair grips tangled up in it, and some fragments of stocking snagged in the brambles. The lead investigator is Detective Superintendent Frank Smead of Kent CID. He makes two crucial decisions early on. The first is to call in Home Office pathologist Dr Keith Simpson. We've already encountered Dr Simpson previously in this very show, when his expertise helped catch the acid bath murderer, John George Haig. The second is to request help from Scotland Yard, in particular from a detective who helped with another murder investigation in Kent earlier that year. The detective's name is Chief Inspector Robert Honey Fabian. We've also met Fabian in a previous episode, when we covered the crimes of Robert Delaney, the so-called gentleman thief. With over 20 years in CID behind him, Chief Inspector Fabian is one of the Yard's most experienced and brilliant detectives. Dr. Simpson is on the scene by 6.15 that evening. He has the police position their cars so that the headlights light up the area around the body as he works. He notes the presence of bruising around the woman's throat, indicating that she was strangled. For Dr. Simpson, the body itself is the most important piece of evidence in a murder investigation. His first task is to understand how it fits into the overall crime scene. The pathologist draws two significant conclusions. First, he doesn't believe that the victim was sexually assaulted. She's still fully clothed, though her coat is ripped. There are deep cuts on her right leg, too. His other conclusion is that she was killed elsewhere and brought to this spot after death. Dr. Simpson arranges for the body to be taken to a nearby mortuary where he will work through the night on the autopsy. In his report, Dr. Simpson gives the victim's age as around 50. He notes the color of her eyes, gray-blue. Distinguishing features include protruding upper teeth and an old scar under her left nostril. Dr. Simpson finds nothing on the victim that could help to identify her. There are no maker's labels in any of her clothes, suggesting they are homemade. So far, the police have not found a handbag or purse. Could the absence of a handbag indicate that the motive for her murder was robbery? Dr. Simpson doubts it. Judging from the homemade clothes, she was not a wealthy woman, and certainly not an obvious target for a thief. Dr. Simpson notes 
that she was a virgin and finds no evidence of rape or sexual assault, confirming his earlier hypothesis. The motive for the attack remains a mystery. His analysis of the marks around her neck lead him to conclude that she was strangled from behind with some kind of ligature, most likely a folded piece of cloth held tightly across her throat. There's no sign of a struggle, apart from her clenched right fist. Dr. Simpson describes this as a cadaveric spasm, an involuntary reaction to violence that takes place at the moment of death. He places the time of death at between 7 and 9 that morning. Dr. Simpson notes the presence of dark staining on her buttocks, caused by blood settling post-mortem. This tells him that the victim had remained sitting upright for some time after her death, confirming his other theory that she had been killed elsewhere and brought to Rootham Hill when she was already dead. While Dr. Simpson is working on the autopsy, Superintendent Smead meets Chief Inspector Fabian of Scotland Yard at West Malling Police Station, the nearest station to Rootham Hill. The two men's expressions are grim as they shake hands. They share an ominous sense of deja vu. Three months ago, they had worked on another shocking case together. 11-year-old Sheila Martin had been raped and murdered. Her body left in woodland just five miles north of Rootham Hill. The girl had been strangled with her own headband. The similarity in MO is not lost on either detective. The geographical proximity of the two crimes is also unsettling. Despite their best efforts, Smead and Fabian failed to find Sheila Martin's killer. Fabian returned to London, the case unsolved. The murderer remained at liberty. Could it be that he is now struck again? Is what every murder detective fears. The Martin case was not Fabian's first high-profile failure. A year before that, in 1945, Fabian investigated the murder of 74-year-old farm labourer Charles Walton in Salisbury. The case became famous because locals suspected witchcraft was involved. Fabian had strong suspicions who the murderer was, but the evidence eluded him. Now 45 years old, Fabian has a reputation as one of Scotland Yard's preeminent detectives. But with these two recent failures, it's starting to look like he might be losing his touch. He desperately needs to solve the case of the Rootham Hill woman. There's a lot at stake. More than just his own confidence as a detective, he also has to repay Superintendent Smead's trust in him. Smead hasn't just asked for Fabian's help, he's placed him in charge of the operation. Naturally, Fabian is also concerned about the safety of the public. When news of the murder gets out, the second strangling in the neighbourhood within a few months it will send shockwaves through the normally peaceful countryside. Fabian only knows one way to bring the murderer to justice, and that is to calmly and methodically follow the evidence. If he feels any self-doubt, he doesn't let it show. Immaculately turned out in a dapper suit and tie, his trademark pipe clenched between his teeth, he projects an air of confidence and professionalism as he gets down to business. The first thing Fabian has to do is identify the victim. That night, in time for the morning papers, he circulated a description to police stations and the press, giving the woman's estimated age and distinguishing features. 
The bulletin also itemizes the clothes she was wearing. The homemade grey-blue overcoat with a bright orange lining, blue dress, blue and beige jumper, blue shoes made from a mixture of suede and leather. Someone, somewhere, must know this woman. Soon after 7am, on Friday the 1st of November, 79-year-old Maine Petrozevoski sits down to read her morning newspaper, The Daily Telegraph. Known to her neighbours as Mrs Peters, Mame lives in a bungalow on the Heaver estate in the village of West Kingsdown, five miles from where the body had been found. Her nearest neighbour is her daughter Dagmar, who lives in a single-room hut built on a plot of land next to her mother's. Dagmar is 47 years old and unmarried. She moved into the hut five years earlier, after the house where she lived in London was bombed in the Blitz. Her health had suffered, and she ended up taking early retirement from her job as a telephone operator with the post office. Though she lives close to her mother, Dagmar values her independence. She often travels around the countryside on her own, hitching lifts with lorry drivers. She always offers to pay the equivalent of her bus fare, but most of the drivers turn it down, glad of the company. Mame worries about Dagmar, especially when she's off on one of her trips. To reassure her mother, Dagmar has agreed to put a note in her mailbox saying either in or out, depending on her movements. This morning, when Mame went to get her paper, she saw yesterday's note, out, was still there, showing that Dagmar had not come home last night. Now, as Mame reads the telegraph, her eye is caught by a brief story in the inside pages. An unidentified woman's body has been found on Rootsham Hill. She knows immediately that it's Dagmar. What clinches it for her is the blue coat with the orange lining. She was there with Dagmar when she bought the orange satin at Maidstone Market. Mame doesn't have a phone. She walks to the phone box at the corner of the street and calls the police. Later that morning, a police car collects Mame and takes her to West Malling Police Station where she is met by Superintendent Smead and Chief Inspector Fabian. Shaking from shock, the elderly woman is so upset that it's hard to get a coherent statement from her. But for the investigation to proceed, they need a positive identification. Taking her to see the body is out of the question. Instead, Fabian shows her clothing taken from the victim, the coat with the orange lining, the jumper, the dress, one of the shoes. Tears are streaming down Mame's face as she confirms that the clothes belong to her daughter, Dagmar Petrozevoski, also known as Dagmar Peters. Dagmar had left home before dawn the previous day, Thursday, October the 31st, with the intention of visiting her brother Ralph and his wife Elena in Woking. Mame tells Fabian about her daughter's habit of hitching rides with lorry drivers, explaining that she refused to get into private cars as she didn't think it was safe. To help him make sense of Dagmar's movements, Fabian needs to know as much detail as possible. At this stage in the investigation, nothing is irrelevant. He asks Mame if she can describe what Dagmar would have had with her that day. Mame tries to visualize her daughter as she sets out on one of her journeys. 
She tells Fabian that Dagmar was probably carrying a yellow string bag that her sister-in-law, Elena, had crocheted for her and a brown attaché case that Mame herself had given her. The attaché case had a broken handle mended with string and would have contained her sandwiches for lunch. She also had a brown purse and keys for her hut. And Dagmar always takes a present for Elena, perhaps some eggs from her hens or a little bit of butter or cheese. Fabian smiles reassuringly. This is all very helpful. He asks Mame if there is anything else she can think of. There was the puppy, she suddenly remembers. Three days ago, the two of them had gone to Maidstone Market, where Mame had bought herself a black and tan Jack Russell Terrier puppy. They called it Hedy, after the actress Hedy Lamar, but Mame couldn't cope with the dog's yapping, so she gave it to Dagmar. Then Dagmar decided to give the puppy to Ralph and Elena, which is why she would have taken it with her. However painful it is for Mame to go over these details, Fabian knows he has to keep pushing her. The more he knows about Dagmar, the better his chances of finding her killer. He asks her if Dagmar picked up anything else at the market. Mame nods. She bought a second-hand white woolen vest, which had been repaired on one shoulder. Dagmar planned to recycle it, perhaps making a scarf out of the material. The details that Mame provides help Fabian build up a picture of the victim. She's no longer an anonymous body. She's a person with a name, a family, a home and a past. Even a puppy. Her personality is beginning to emerge. She's thrifty and resourceful, a little eccentric perhaps, but she's also someone with a kind heart who thinks of others. She may not have had many friends, her mother tells him that she never had any visitors to her hut, but at the same time, she had no enemies. Mame can't think of anyone who might have wanted to harm her daughter. At last, Mame is driven home. Later that day, Dagmar's brother Ralph is taken to the mortuary and formally identifies the body. Now that Fabian has a positive ID for the victim, his next priority is to find the items that Mame has described. The yellow string bag, the attaché case, the purse, the key, and the puppy. Officers comb the countryside, searching for Dagmar's missing belongings, but without success. Following his interview with Mame, Fabian focuses the investigation on lorry drivers, issuing a nationwide alert, calling on all police to make urgent inquiries. 10,000 separate locations are visited and checked, including transport garages, drivers' cafes, haulage contractors and delivery firms. Detectives pull over lorry drivers along the route, questioning them about their whereabouts on the morning of the 31st. The inquiries produce a few tantalizing results. One driver reports seeing the blue shoe on the verge at around 7.15 a.m. on the morning of the 31st, long before Joe Hammond stopped to investigate it. Another driver describes a grey saloon car, which he spotted parked at the spot where Dagmar's body was found at 5.30 that same morning. Two farmers, a father and son, both called Henry Bennett, report seeing a woman thumbing a lift at 5.10am as they drove their lorry about a mile and a half from Dagmar's home village 
It was still dark, so they couldn't give a description of the woman, though they noticed a flash of something light-colored around her neck. The Bennets didn't stop for the lone hitchhiker, but they saw another lorry coming in the opposite direction. That driver must have seen the woman. Perhaps he picked her up. A search is made of Dagmar's hut. A number of letters are found from a lorry driver called Mullen Costa, in which he mentions the possibility of meeting Dagmar in London on the 31st of October. When Costa is tracked down, he turns out to have a solid alibi. Costa and Dagmar had become friends after he'd given her a couple of lifts. He would let her know his routes in advance, just in case they coincided with where she wanted to go. Fabian is no closer to catching Dagmar's killer. Nothing that he has learnt about Dagmar's life suggests a reason why anyone would want her dead. She kept herself to herself. She was not particularly close to any of her neighbours, but neither was there any evidence of any friction. It's true that after she'd been made homeless by a German bomb, Dagmar had wanted to move in permanently with Ralph and Elena, but Ralph had refused. That may have made things awkward between them, but it doesn't appear that Dagmar bore a lasting grudge, not judging by the fact that she continued to visit the couple and was even planning to give them a puppy. And besides, it's hardly a reason for Ralph to kill his sister. With no credible suspects and no motive, Fabian desperately needs a breakthrough. But he can't just wait for one to fall into his lap. He has to find a way to push the case forward. The first thing he does is issue a press release confidently predicting the breakthrough he wants, at the same time stating that the field of suspects has narrowed to lorry drivers using the A20 where Dagmar's body was found. The idea is to put pressure on the perpetrator. His second move is quite simply a stroke of genius. On Tuesday the 5th of November, the same day that the inquest into Dagmar's death begins, Fabian asks Elena Pedrozovsky if she could make an identical copy of the bag she made for Dagmar. Elena still has some of the yellow string left. She stays up all night to finish it. The next day, Chief Inspector Fabian arranges for the bag to be photographed and the image circulated to local and national newspapers. On the 7th of November, a young farm worker called Peter Nash sees the picture of the bag in the Kent Messenger. He immediately recognises it. On Saturday the 2nd of November, Nash had fished an identical bag out of a lake in the parkland of Clare House, a stately home between East and West Malling, where he sometimes works. The bag was of no use to Nash, so he gave it to a family friend who washed it and passed it on to a neighbour. It so happens that Peter Nash's father is a retired Kent policeman. He gets the bag back and hands it over to his former colleagues who take it to Chief Inspector Fabian. Fabian shows the bag to Elena, who confirms it's the one she made her sister-in-law. The bag is analysed by a forensic scientist at the Metropolitan Police Laboratory in Hendon. Despite the fact the bag had been washed, traces of human hair, identical to those of the deceased, are found in its fibres, together with dog hairs. For Fabian, this is the development he's been hoping for. It's a clue that will lead him to Dagmar's killer. 
The bag may be a clue, but it's also a puzzle. What was it doing in the grounds of Clare House, a private park closed to the public? Far from any main roads, it's not somewhere a lorry driver would pass through. It's also a long way from the isolated spot where Dagmar's body was left. Fabian speaks to locals to try to get a better understanding of the area. He discovers that the lake where the bag was found is fed by a stream that has its source in East Malling. The stream runs overground alongside a footpath until it passes beneath the Goldwell Cider Works, located between Mill Street and a lane called Blacklands. One of the people he talks to is the local girl guide leader. She tells him that when she was a child, she used to throw messages in bottles into the stream where the cider works are and retrieve them from the lake in Clare House Park a few hours later. Fabian puts the story to the test, putting his own messages into bottles and launching them in the stream near the cider factory. Three hours later, he retrieves the messages from the lake in Clare House Park. He repeats the experiment with the replica bag, made by Elena Petrozevovsky. That, too, finds its way to the lake. Fabian now focuses his attention on the Goldwell Cider Works. Walking round the building, he sees that it's in the process of being renovated. In the yard at the back, he spots a big pile of new bricks neatly stacked on pallets. He tracks down the foreman and asks when they were delivered. The foreman thinks for a moment before replying. The bricks were dropped off on October the 31st, first thing in the morning. He shows the detective the delivery notes. The driver was from M. Dickerson Limited, a haulage firm based in Cambridge. Further inquiries reveal that the driver who delivered the bricks is one Sydney Sinclair. Fabian contacts Cambridge Police, requesting that they send an officer to take a statement from him. On the evening of Saturday the 9th of November, Detective Sergeant Childerley calls at Sinclair's home in the pretty Cambridgeshire village of Little Abington. Inside the cosy thatched cottage, everything seems normal. Sinclair's wife, Daisy, offers the detective a cup of tea while her little daughter hides shyly behind her mother's legs. Childerley reckons he's a good judge of character. His impression of Sinclair is that he's a devoted family man. Mrs. Sinclair is charming. It doesn't seem possible that the Sinclairs could have anything to do with the grim murder of that woman in Kent. Sinclair gives a long statement that goes into considerable detail. He says that he left his house at 10pm the night of Wednesday, October the 30th, his lorry fully laden with bricks. He arrived in West Malling at 6.30am when he asked a passing cyclist for directions to the cider works. In other words, a journey that should have taken about four hours took him eight and a half hours. Sinclair is clear on one point. On my journey down to East Malling, I did not pick anyone up. No one thumbed me for a lift. In fact, I saw no one on the road except for other traffic, which was fairly heavy in both directions. Two days later, on Monday the 11th of November, police searching the Kent countryside find a white woolen vest. The vest is sent to the Metropolitan Police Laboratory for immediate analysis. 
A large number of Dagmar's head hairs are found tangled in the fibres. When the vest is shown to Mame Petrozevosky, she confirms that it is the one that Dagmar bought from Maidstone Market, which she was using as a scarf. Could this have been the light-coloured flash that the two Henry Bennett saw around a female hitchhiker's neck early in the morning of the 31st? The following Wednesday, police officers find a brown attaché case with its lid broken off, together with a woman's glove. They have been discarded by the side of Winterfield Lane, the lane Sinclair would have driven down to get to the cider works. The items are checked for fingerprints, but nothing of significance is discovered. When Fabian shows the broken case to Dagmar's mother, she confirms that it was the one she had given to her daughter. Detectives question workers from the cider factory. A man called Bernard Eldridge reports seeing a lorry laden with bricks waiting to be let in when he clocked on at 6.52 that morning. The driver asked him where he should park. Eldridge directed him to the yard at the rear of the factory, close to the stream which runs under the factory and feeds the lake in Clare House Park. It would be an hour before the lorry was unloaded. Plenty of time for Sinclair to throw Dagmar's string bag in the stream and dispose of the other evidence. Sidney Sinclair is now Fabian's prime suspect. On the 16th of November, Chief Inspector Fabian drives to Dickerson's garage with a team of detectives and forensic investigators. The manager, Alan Bell, informs Fabian that four days earlier, Sinclair had quit. He'd given Bell a doctor's certificate saying that he was suffering from anxiety neurosis. When Fabian looks into Sinclair's work record, a number of alarming incidents come to light. There was a time in 1943 when he drove his lorry into a ditch, turning the vehicle over. A year later, he knocked a man off his bicycle. After that, he drove through a garden wall. Just three months before the East Malling delivery, he crushed a man against a wall in West Acton. The only explanation Sinclair offered for these lapses was that he sometimes suffered from dizziness and headaches. Next, Fabian visits the doctor who had issued Sinclair's sickness certificate. He confirms that Sinclair had come to him complaining of anxiety brought on by an accident that had rattled him and made him want to stop driving. Annette is closing in. Fabian requests a police car to be sent to Little Abington to bring Sidney Sinclair in for questioning. On the 22nd of November, Chief Inspector Fabian travels to Cambridge to question his suspect. He's accompanied by Superintendent Smead and Fabian's trusted right-hand man, Detective Sergeant Harry Rawlings, another Scotland Yard detective. In his memoirs, Fabian describes the moment he first set eyes on Sinclair. He entered the room boldly enough, a big, thick-handed man with a bruiser's face, but there was something about him. Surely this is an old lag, I thought. But Sidney Sinclair did not have a criminal record, and there's no solid evidence linking Sinclair to Dagmar. Still, Fabian has a hunch. There is something about the man sitting in front of him that doesn't quite add up. I have a statement made by you to Detective Sergeant Childerley of Cambridge, Fabian begins. 
and I would like to go through it with you. This is Fabian's classic technique. The idea is to go over a suspect's statement with them over and over again, asking them the same questions, picking over the details, waiting for them to slip up, either contradicting what they've said before or adding something that they should have mentioned earlier. Fabian starts by throwing a curved ball. What did you say your name is again? There's something about the way the man replies. Maybe a slight hesitation or a nervous tick, like a bad poker player's tell. Sidney Sinclair, he says. But Fabian is convinced he's lying. When it comes to poker faces, Fabian is the master. How long has your name been Sidney Sinclair? He asks, keeping his eyes fixed steadily on the other man. A slight tremor shows in Sinclair's hand, but he says nothing. Fabian begins reading out Sinclair's own statement. Statement of Sidney Sinclair of 25 Little Abington, Cambridgeshire, lorry driver of 45 years, who saith, I am a lorry driver employed by Dickerson of Cambridge. But before he has read much further, Sinclair interrupts. Wait a minute. You want me to be truthful, don't you? Certainly, says Fabian. Sinclair continues. Okay, my right name is Harold Hagger, but I've been known as Sid Sinclair for years. Fabian keeps his expression deadpan as he nods and takes this in. D.S. Rawlings gets up and leaves the room. Fabian knows he'll be on the phone to Scotland Yard to see if there's anything on Harold Hagger in the criminal records office. Meanwhile, Fabian pushes the man now calling himself Hagger to see if he will admit to any wrongdoing under that name. Hagger concedes that he's been in prison a couple of times. Next, Fabian drops a bombshell of his own. He tells Hagger that a string bag belonging to the murdered woman was found in the lake at Clare House. He explains that it could have got there after being thrown in the stream near the cider works. The effect on Hagger is startling. He slumps forward, in Fabian's words, as if he had been clubbed. His face turns a sickly yellow colour. He sits with his head in his hands. Fabian asks him if he's all right. I get a bit of a head sometimes, Hagger says. Fabian presents himself as a sympathetic friend and arranges for someone to bring the suspect a cup of tea and a piece of cake from the canteen. At that point, D.S. Rawlings comes in. He's heard back from the criminal records office. Harold Hagger has 16 convictions. One is for assault on a woman. Hagger starts to crack. Look here, Governor, I'm worried to death, he tells Fabian. I found the attaché case and chucked it away. When I read in the paper that it was the murdered woman's, I got the wind up, but true as I sit here, I never saw any woman. Hagger has made a huge blunder. The police never released the information that Dagmar had an attaché case. It's a detail that only the murderer could have known. Under Fabian's persistent and patient questioning, Hagger's story gradually changes from one statement to the next. 
On Saturday the 23rd of November 1946, less than a month after a body was found on Rutum Hill, he finally admits to picking up and killing Dagmar Petrozevoski, although he tries to put the blame for her death onto Dagmar herself. He claims that Dagmar made him pull over his lorry and propositioned him saying that she would play about with him if he gave her some money. While he was distracted, she picked his wallet out of his jacket. So that's your bloody game, is it? Hagger allegedly shouted, before hitting her around the side of the face. According to Hagger, Dagmar then started kicking and screaming. He panicked and grabbed hold of the vest she was wearing around her neck as a scarf. I must have pulled it too hard, and the next thing I saw was the still body of the woman, and this frightened me. His statement continues. Fabian lets Hagger carry on telling his pathetic lies. Given everything he knows about Dagmar, it's inconceivable that the shy, timid, sexually inexperienced 47-year-old woman would have done or said any of the things Hagger claims she did. But Fabian is a policeman, methodical, thorough, and forensic. He has to build a case against Hagger that will convince a jury. He has Hagger's wallet checked for fingerprints. Not surprisingly, there's no evidence that Dagmar ever handled it. Hagger is formally charged with the murder of Dagmar Petrozevoski. Hagger's trial takes place in late February 1947. His defense barrister does not rely on the ridiculous and insulting story that Dagmar died while Hagger was trying to retrieve his stolen wallet from her. Instead, he argues that this was a case of involuntary manslaughter due to insanity. The jury is not persuaded. After deliberating for just 35 minutes, they find Harold Hagger, alias Sidney Sinclair, guilty of murder. He is sentenced to death and hanged at Wandsworth Prison on Tuesday the 18th of March 1947 by the famous executioner Albert Pierpoint. DCI Robert Fabian's reputation as a brilliant detective is restored. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential is five days until Christmas in 1988. A young photographer is reported missing when she fails to arrive at a friend's house, having only just called to say she would be there in 10 minutes. Even though her walk from the train station took her down a well-lit, busy main road, police are instantly worried. There have been a number of attacks on women in the local area recently. Their fears are confirmed the following day when a body is found and their missing persons case becomes a murder investigation. The case is solved thanks to a number of firsts for Scotland Yard's forensic scientists and marks the first time in British legal history that DNA profiling is used to convict a murderer. Scotland 
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.